0: to Tea and Murder, an Agatha Christie podcast, part interview show, part book club, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy Norman, and I am thrilled to have with me today Levi Higgs. Levi is a jewelry and decorative arts historian based in New York City. Levi is also head of archive and brand heritage at David Webb Jewels. You can follow his glittering day-to-day on Instagram at levi underscore higgs it's h-i-g-g-s and if you are not following levi and you are interested in jewelry it is a must do because he just showcases the absolute most beautiful pieces you could imagine welcome levi wow thank you so much (laughs) i'm excited to be here i'm so excited to have you so i'm going to start with my classic first question which is how did you come to agatha christie are you an agatha christie fan and if so what have you read of her work i
1: am an agatha christie Fan in principle. Okay, I have not. <laughs> I have not read. You're a
0: conceptually t-
1: an Agatha Christie fan. Yes. Yeah, it's very like on my mood board. Okay, of, <laughs> that's such a great <laughs> answer. Of twee things that I love. I love. I love murder mysteries. I love all things British. I uh-huh. mean, you're an she, Anglophile. Yes. Okay, she's wonderful. Yeah, but have I read? The dearth of books she's written, absolutely not. Who has
0: the time other right. than me, for example? Right. yeah, well, that's why we're here.
1: Um, I've definitely read Murder on the Orient Express, which Fantastic. we'll sort of get to. But mm-hmm. um, this was the second one I think I've sat through the full book.
0: Yeah. Um, so sat through the full <laughs> book. You make it sound wow. wonderful. I need to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> Reel it on it. Oh, my gosh. So, okay. So you've read a couple of her books. Yes. I've, but... seen, I've seen movies.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've seen anything Miss Marple. I've definitely seen, okay. you know, the the new Kenneth Branagh you films. Have. Okay. R- ready for the next one, The Haunting in Venice. Right. Um, We're so, all waiting
0: on Tenterhooks for that one. Yeah, just sort of a <laughs> casual
1: consumer of. Okay. I would say.
0: Yeah. But you are, in general, a huge reader and a mystery fan. Yeah. So yeah, what what is it that you look for in mysteries in general?
1: Whenever I'm choosing a book and i try to like let the spirit speak to me of like what i'm gonna choose from my to be read pile i i'll like temper a serious book that i just finished with like a fast-paced mystery so i'm always sort of like doling one in in the 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 cadence of what i'm reading and so to that end i want something that's just making me keep reading and turning the page and finishing Mm -hmm. what's going on um uh, yeah, I love like staying up late to like pound a book at the end. Isn't that the
0: best feeling when you're <laughs> yes. like, I just I gotta get to the end of this. Totally. Yeah. What What recently has kept you awake?
1: Um, I think the most recent mystery I read was Oh, The Only One Left by okay. Riley Sager. Oh,
0: I've heard that's you very know, good. It's pretty good. Yeah, you it's, liked it. I love yeah. the cover. The cover is like classic style. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, it's coastal Maine. I think it's set in the '80s. There's Great. a a woman who's um. Like paralyzed and can't speak, and there's a mystery around her backstory. It's very good. It
0: sounds like a John Carpenter film, but a book of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. So, you—that's what you look for in a mystery, and and like other types of book, you're reading a lot of nonfiction. What do you like? What else are you reading?
1: I—I'm reading The Idiot right now, which I'm sort of. That's
0: great. I haven't read it. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's it's sort of um trans inducing. It's just kind of like stream of consciousness in a way, and it's good yeah. but it's it's making me like work for it a little bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> more so than a mystery would yeah, yeah. i understand um and you just I, read the guest by emma I did, klein i did yeah. just read the guest it was As super summer yeah you were mm-hmm. into that okay. i had to it felt
1: very zeitgeist yeah um i try to read some nonfiction. i like new york history mm-hmm. um there's a lot of like untold stories of 19th century or early 20th century people that I, i'm interested in so i try to try to read a bit, bit of everything
0: Okay, yeah, fantastic. Uh, and so you're the head of archive and brand heritage at uh, the renowned David Webb Jewels. What yes. was your journey to that that world, that position?
1: Yeah, so I've, I guess I've always been interested in jewelry since childhood, in in the way that children are interested in like tiny, beautiful things and collecting mm-hmm. things and having a treasure box and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied art history at school at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, I didn't want to go straight into an art history master's program and I through work that I did at um, UW I was interested in like Victorian genre scenes and I was looking at objects in rooms painted in these rooms and you know everything in a Victorian painting is like symbolic so like the dropped glove and the music on the piano and the 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 globe and exactly like everything Mm -hmm. meant something so I loved sort of looking at decorative arts that way and I was like okay let's explore this a little bit decorative arts master's programs are few and far between. There were um, a few good ones in New York. The one I chose ultimately was at Parsons um, through the Cooper Hewitt, which is the Smithsonian's Design Museum in the Upper East Side. Um, And through that program, I got to focus a lot on jewelry specifically. So I'm a true decorative arts design jewelry historian. uh, And I pretty much went I, I had connections to people at David Webb through the master's program mm-hmm. and through some other um, a first job that I had in New York. And I basically went straight into David Webb after graduating oh, with wow. my master's degree. And I've been there a decade plus. Wow. Um, which That's is quite incredible. a long time, but it's it's an amazing brand. It's a great yeah. American brand. And i um sort of the keeper of all the archives and drawings and renderings. And
0: yeah. What a rich history. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of, um, in terms of the archive pieces, that were never made?
1: Tons. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands. Absolutely. I mean, he was very prolific. And yeah. we constantly sort of mine what we have to be able to, yes, create new jewelry, but also keep true to, like, the brand DNA and, and yeah. things that he was thinking of himself when he uh, was alive. He died in 1875. So okay. we have a lot
0: to draw from. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um so you deal with a lot of very storied jewelry. What makes a piece of jewelry like historically important or interesting?
1: Great question. I thank you so
0: much. <laughs> <laughs> you did your homework. I did. I
1: I guess I mean so jewelry is so useless in a sense, it does nothing How dare you, but go on. <laughs> it does nothing functional. It it it's a a capsule of beauty, really. And um, in the way that other decorative arts are functional, like here we are on chairs, here we are walking on a rug, you know, it does something in a room. Mm. But jewelry is, it functions at the highest echelons of society. It, it trickles down to everyone has a wedding ring or what, like there's jewelry in everyone's life in mm-hmm. some sense. And I find that they are kind of the perfect capsules for storytelling, for design storytelling, um, design history. You you think about the tropes of art deco design it is perfectly embodied in jewelry from that period, mm. or or any period. Pick a period, and the jewelry is like very, like to a T, what that design period is about. Yeah. Um. So I love that the provenance can be can be really important and interesting, or the design can tell a rich story, or the materials themselves are very unique and rare and and valuable. Like, mm. there's just so much that kind of swirls around this very like mysterious, um, decorative art, mm. and it's. Very appealing. I don't know. It's seductive. What can I say?
0: It is seductive. So why do you think then that jewelry is often used as a plot device in mysteries? Um, is it about like, what is about a jewel theft or a heist that kind of captures our imagination?
1: I mean, I think it lends a certain uh, glamour to a, mm-hmm. a murder mystery or a sure. heist or, or something like that. It It's um, not something that everyone at its highest level is brushing up against like the you know these important rubies in the story yeah everyone knows about them but we'll talk about that (laughs) right but but they're they're kind of these like legendary stones right Right. so for them to be kind of snatched away is really disturbing and and kind of drives the plot of like we have to get them back they've been taken Mm -hmm. um they're so valuable like there's a lot of a lot of things at stake with high jewelry like that.
0: And what would be – what do you think makes it more interesting than, for example, like a mystery that's about financial gain in other ways? Mm -hmm. Like what is it about jewelry? Is it like the personal element of jewelry that makes it a little bit more – like close to home. I mean, if it's worn on
1: the body, it's very personal right. and it's also very tangible. It mm-hmm. can be it's not just a bag of cash. It's not just like, oh, the accounts are going to transfer into my name. It's not a will yeah. in that kind of paperwork legality sense of, uh, you know, financial gain. This is like, oh, snatch the box and run. And it can be dramatic. It can be, yeah. Um, I don't know, sort of thrusting forward the plot in like a very... Visceral way. Yeah.
0: And I think what you were saying before about kind of jewelry being non functional mm-hmm. is interesting in that sense because there are obviously jewelry high it's about getting the jewelry and then selling it. But there are also jewelry high sorts about just getting the jewels oh, and yeah. having them. Mm-hmm. And that's such a fascinating thing to me the idea that people would. Commit that kind of crime just to have something beautiful,
1: right? I mean, think about the theft of like Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Like those paintings can't be sold; they're right. so well known. You know, maybe they can move around in like a black market sense. Yeah. But whoever has them wants them. Yeah. Right. So sing- I would like them if you would totally. like to send them to me. <laughs> <laughs> so th- there was just a big jewelry heist in in Germany. I think with okay. like pieces that are still missing from this museum. They right. got they got a lot back, but. Like the Dresden Green Diamond was going to be there, but it was actually at the Met at the time, okay. so it it you know escaped the the heist. But sadly, a lot of things do get broken up and recut and and moved around that way. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it's kind of once again seductive to think about like some villain in a lair who's rubbing his hands together trying to get this like certain diamond or or something. I don't know. Like you never know.
0: And and is there also as I'm as I'm saying it like an element of like we can never know. In terms of jewelry and big stones, what's ill-gotten mm. and what isn't?
1: Well, at a yeah, at a certain point, an antique diamond or or any stone could be recut and mm-hmm. not identifiable right. um, from its original form. Uh, you know, you you look at like the Hope Diamond, and there's documented um, faceting and different forms that it had over the or the, the centuries. Okay. And you know, if someone, God forbid, were to snatch the Hope Diamond and take it to you know. A cutting facility and break it up into five different stones. Like that could happen. Yeah. Um. And no one would necessarily know which chunks were which and where they came right. from. Right. I mean, like
0: when you look through a microscope, it's like Hope Diamond. Right. PM. Yeah. Right.
1: Um. So yeah, it, things can definitely disappear forever, which is okay. a little frightening.
0: Frightening and also fascinating in terms of like something like a diamond, which is meant to be literally a diamond is forever. Mm-hmm. Um, that it can kind of take on different shapes. Sure. Um, So I'm going to give a little historical note about the book we're talking about, which is The Mystery of the Blue Train. Thank you for reading it. My question. (laughs) The Mystery of the Blue Train is a Poirot mystery published in the U.S. and U.K. in 1928. Uh, It revolves around a jewelry theft on a train headed for the French Riviera, so lots of glamorous things happening at once. Um, Although the jewel theft may be a classic mystery plot device, it actually does not appear that frequently in Christie books. Um, Although, I mean, she wrote so many, it's like, can anything really appear that frequently? Um, typically, her murders have to do more with like straightforward financial gain. The only other book I can recall having a jewelry heist as part of the plot is a Cat Among the Pigeons, and I'm sure my listeners will tell me if I'm wrong. Um, and there are a handful of other short stories in which there are jewelry thefts, including Plymouth Express, Double Clue, uh, and The Jewelry Robbery at the Grand Metropolitan. There are also jewel thefts in After the Funeral and Hickory Dickory Dock, but those are used as red herrings um, rather rather than the reason for the crime. Um, Critical reception for the book was overall fairly good, although Christie herself actually called this her least favorite book. Um, That may be because she was writing it and struggling quite hard with it, um, both before and after her infamous disappearance in 1926. Uh, which you can find out more about, the specifics of in our episode with Kelsey McKinney called The Four Suspects. Um, So this would also have been around the time that she divorced Archie Archie Christie and also the death of her mother, uh, who she loved very much. So there was a lot going on in her life at this time. So while I don't think this is her worst book by like a lot, um, I can understand why she wouldn't want to revisit it. Uh, The most notable adaptation of this book is the ITV Poirot episode with David Suchet. There are quite a lot of changes to that plot in the adaptation, including putting pretty much everyone on the train at once, and also switching things around a little bit like Murrell becomes Rufus's mistress rather than Derek's, for example. Um, In that version, Elliot Gould plays Rufus Van Alden, which is so fantastic because as mystery lovers will know, Gould also plays Philip Marlowe, who I consider kind of the American counterpart in many ways to Poirot. Um, And in 1973 is The Long Goodbye, directed by Robert Altman. And uh, not to get off track, but if you have not seen The Long Goodbye, please watch it. It is so great. It is so stylish. And uh, 1970s Elliot Gould is, like, very much my type. So, Levi, can you please give us a one minute or so synopsis of The Mystery of the Blue Train?
1: Sure. (laughs) Um, There are so many people with the name K (laughs) that I, even as I was reading it over the course of it, I was like, hold on. (laughs) Yes. Um, Basically, there is a woman who goes on a train Mm -hmm. and she is given these very important rubies her father's sort of watching over her there's some like mystery things happening off off stage uh, previous to the train trip Mm -hmm. um she gets strangled she before she gets strangled she meets another woman on the train who is sort of a pointless character we'll talk about that um and lo and behold uh, Poirot was on the train as well to solve what the luck. mystery. Um, <laughs> to me, it felt a little bit like uh, Murder on the Orient Express light. Totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, they're, they're investigating who, you know, the, the different stops along the, the course of the train mm-hmm. and who could have been seen going in and out and... Um, it took a long time, also, for the mystery to be solved. He, it was like yeah. weeks it, since it happened, yeah. and then um, I'm doing a terrible job of summing it up. Uh, so <laughs> I
0: really am enjoying the like saving I'm enjoying this. <laughs> Please save me. But
1: so there's a lot of people with name K's. There's a, a dropped cigarette case, I think, that mm-hmm. had a K on it. That was sort of an important clue. Yes. There's a maid who also ends up disguised as a boy, mm-hmm. um, and then of course, of course, Poirot um, solves it and, yeah. and fingers the the jewel thief who.
0: Yes. Perfect summary, <laughs> no notes. Um, very I embarrassed no.
1: for a book that I just read a week ago. But
0: <laughs> no, But but I think what you've kind of cornered about this book is there are so many elements that it's very actually very hard to do a summary of this book. I am sorry that you had to summarize this one because it isn't like Murder on the Orient Express where everything happens on the train it's so and the journey. Yeah. It's yeah so yeah. tight. This is a very diffuse book in a Definitely. lot of ways and as you said Catherine gray who is in many ways a lovely character i find her completely superfluous to this um to this book and unfortunately and she appears in it constantly yeah it just seemed like she was
1: in existence for someone for pro, pro- to talk to exactly. like to pontificate to about his thoughts and yeah i don't know
0: exactly and he could have just done that with rufus van alden right so i think it was it was unnecessary but um I also just sorry not not really necessary to the trope or to the plot but the idea that men keep being obsessed with her eyes, mm, yes, was like in what world are eyes. men constantly yeah. talking about her, a woman's eyes, mm-hmm. and um, gray eyes at that. Which I've never seen a person with gray eyes. I there are so many Agatha Christie books, and when she talks about someone with gray eyes, wow.
1: Maybe it's, it's maybe it's like cigarettes or something. Like too many drugs that <laughs> I don't know just drain people of color. Who knows?
0: Yeah, or maybe it was like at the t- you know maybe cocaine, cocaine toothpaste. <laughs> yeah, exactly something cocaine and the coca-cola it was like that kind of thing but yeah anyway so that's um that's that but so this book has um a famous ruby the heart of fire that seemingly everybody who talks about it just knows about Mm -hmm. right um and so much so that someone could make a convincing replica of this stone and the whole necklace without having seen it because right. it's in her care, right? It's in Ruth Kettering, the, the victim's care. Um, in your experience, how historically accurate is it that someone – that that stones would be this famous and that so many people would know about them? I mean, honestly, I think yes. I think, oh, really?
1: Okay. I mean, think about the Hope Diamond. Think about Evelyn Walsh McLean mm-hmm. and, like, her sort of – I don't know outlandish um, Washington D.C. society headlines that she had splashed about, uh-huh. like wearing the Hope Diamond and nothing else, and appearing at the top of a staircase like <laughs> scandalously for one moment before all of her party guests, and uh-huh. all the all the terrible things that happened to her family um, because of that curse and the financial ruin. Mm. So, like, there's definitely tabloid stories okay. of you know known diamonds and stones and. Um, yeah, I, I I think, you know, there's a lot of like, what what's the phrase I'm looking for? Like collective consciousness around mm. um, famous diamonds and okay. and gemstones like that. Like everyone thinks that opals are cursed to this day because of a book called Anne of Geierstein um, that came out in the 19th century, and uh-huh. and you know opals are famously temperamental stones because they're water-based so they can like crack and break and thus people think oh if my opal is ruined it's because of the bad luck that's in my life or something so there's a lot of like legends and lore that can kind of seep into public perception of Mm -hmm. a gemstone or what it's used for why you have it as an engagement ring Mm -hmm. or or whatever like all these kind of societal norms yeah Um,
0: but like to the degree that if someone saw like, for me, there are, I guess, a handful of maybe necklaces or pieces of jewelry that I would recognize, right? Sure. Um, and I really like jewelry, so I would maybe go out of my way to learn about those things. But, like, to the person on the street, would they be like, it's the heart of fire? Like, okay, just... well, maybe,
1: maybe not. <laughs> but, like, there could be newspaper articles okay, about it. Okay, all right. Could, there yeah, like in the society pages press and stuff. Okay. about it. All right. Um, yeah, is someone on the street necessarily going to point at it and be like, there she blows? <laughs> no. But... <laughs> In this small world that she's created on the train, like... Yeah, I suppose... People the, in in the know.
0: Yeah, I suppose yeah. it is a lot of people in the know. Like, Catherine Gray doesn't seem to necessarily know about these stones, whereas, right. like, the Comte de la Roche and Murrell and people who would, like, be overly interested right. in money, like, g- gaining financially through a stone. Okay.
1: Yeah. Fair enough. I take uh, it. It was a little confusing to me about whether they were set or not. Like, they seem to be loose yes. at some point, but then... But then Morell had one on a necklace or something, yeah. so it kept sort of changing forms. And I was like, "Hold on, what, yeah. what's the reality
0: here?" But I found that hard to to gauge as well. It sound it from what I gathered, the stones are bought um, at first loose, mm-hmm. and then they're set into a necklace, mm-hmm. and then that necklace is what goes to Ruth Kettering. Yes, when Ruth Kettering loses it, and um, the stones are then sold to Monsieur Papopoulos.
1: Yes, loved him.
0: Yeah, so, and then he takes the stones apart, and then the the necklace with just the large heart of fire ruby is then given to Murrell. Yes, yes, Is my understanding. Um, Okay, so this book has a paste imitation of Mm. Jules, Mm -hmm. which many heist books uh, and films seem to have. Like, there's a replica, and that's kind of part of the plot of, like, knowing how it disappeared. Um, The Ocean's Eight would be a great example of having recently done this. Yep, yep. What is paste jewelry? Is it literal paste I need to understand? I've never <laughs> understood what paste jewelry is and is it really that difficult to tell from the real thing? I would not say
1: I would not say someone would look at a real ruby and a paste ruby uh-huh. and not be able to tell the difference. Okay. A paste stone is it's it's not a a geologically mineralogical stone. Yeah. It's it's like costume jewelry but it's made in a certain way okay. that you know, you it, Georgian jewelry from like the 1830s, 1820s mm-hmm. is often paste jewelry. Like okay. Bridgerton is all about paste jewelry just okay. because that was the style, that was the, the the sort of fashionable way to have all these multicolored foil backed rhinestones essentially. Like okay. they're often crystals and they have like a, a metallic foil behind them to um, like reflect, to give it color yeah. and, and reflect. Yes. Yeah, so it can't be wet um or else the the foil will rust and and ruin the stone um sometimes if you're of a certain status of person and you have real jewelry that are diamonds or rubies or whatever you'll have your paste jewelry that could be like travel jewelry or your like you know non-committal jewelry um but there there definitely is paste jewelry that's like very high quality uh in craftsmanship and very collectible today, I, okay. I know quite a few dealers who deal in paste jewelry. That's very desirable and very historical and cool.
0: Okay, um, but so I mean, in this in this story, mm-hmm. Ruth Kettering's heart of fire rubies are taken and replaced with paste. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it would be very hard, especially without something like a ruby, to not see the difference.
1: It would have to be. Pre-planned, and rubies yeah. have what uh, the trade calls, calls silk in it. Okay. Uh, or it. There's so many different qualities of ruby, but yeah. a ruby always has this sort of like sheen, this interior sort of velvety to mm. it because of like the crystal structure. I'm not yeah. a gemologist, so please don't ask further <laughs> questions. But okay, it's, I will not. It's something like that. It has this like inner luster yeah. that would be hard to... Mimic with a clear rhinestone and foil backing, like okay. that's just going to give you a clear red stone that doesn't have that same sort of inner velvetiness. Yeah. um
0: and it sounds like it also has to be set in order for yeah, yeah it does. It, to even it does be a, a yeah. paste
1: stone. You could have. You could have a glass, a piece of glass, a basically, piece of glass. Yeah. But I, I don't think paste could not have a backing with foil, at least in my sort of experience of paste jewelry. But
0: okay, yeah. and so is it called paste jewelry really because it's pasted to the foil? Is that
1: that is a really good question, and I don't know why it's because called... it's not made of paste. I don't think it's made of paste. Yeah. it's. I think it's a crystal. Yeah, I'm gonna have to text someone immediately <laughs> after this and ask why I need it's called to paste. Know. Um no, it's not like glue it's not paste in that way or or you know some sort of mixture that hardens i think it's like a cut
0: cut stone stone. yeah um like crystal yeah or glass yeah okay that's so interesting because so much of the jewelry heist books of like this era Mm -hmm. rely on kind of the understanding of what paste jewelry Mm -hmm. is and I've never really found that good of an explanation, yeah. so thank you for
1: that. I'm, I'm the the call-out I will make, mm-hmm. um, Simon Teakle in Greenwich, Connecticut, yeah. is an amazing dealer of paste jewelry, okay. and their Instagram will have a lot of information about it. <laughs> amazing. We'll put that in the episode notes. And Larkspur and Hawk is a contemporary jeweler who makes paste jewelry in homage to Georgian jewelry from, from like, the, the eighteen early 1800s. Okay. Um, and they loaned to Bridgerton recently, so they're, like, a oh, very, nice. like up-on-it paste jeweler. Um, And the, sorry, the founder of that company did the same master's program as I did, so she's very like in the decorative arts, in the know, loves that period of
0: history. Fantastic, Yeah. okay. Um, So in this book, the relationship between Rufus Van Alden and his daughter, um, Ruth Kettering, is for me kind of the saving grace of this book. Um, I think that Van Alden's grief when his daughter dies is very moving. Um, and I think that could potentially be related to the fact that um, that Agatha Christie lost her mother around the time that she was writing this book. So right. I think that that grief probably found its way into her writing. Um, and R- Rufus is the one who gives his daughter the heart of fire, which is the reason she's ultimately killed. And there's kind of this idea that the stone is cursed. Um, everyone who's worn it has met bad luck. What is? Tell me a little bit more about your interpretation of like the doomed. Jewelry or doomed stone literary device.
1: Absolutely. I. I mean, I. I sort of mentioned the Hope Diamond and yeah. Evelyn Walsh McLean, like that was very much a thing that was out there that people were aware of, and yeah. all the misfortunes that befell her family. Um, and I'm going to mention opals again. There's yeah. or even the opals even trickle into like Harry Potter. Like think of the oh. sixth. Think of the sixth book when um, someone touches an opal necklace and is cursed, and Snape has to like deal with it and not touch it. Like it. That's a sort of contemporary use of cursed opals. Okay. Um, the book The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins mm-hmm. is um, less about a cursed stone, but very much about like the misfortune around um, a stone. Mm-hmm. And I think, so George F. Kunz is one of my favorite sort of figures from jewelry history. He was um, Tiffany's chief gemologist in, okay. in the 19th century, and he was responsible for writing all these books that sort of informed public perception about what gemstones were used for, what they could be used for. Mm -hmm. There's a book called, um, okay, so George F. Kunz wrote this book called The Curious Lore of Precious Stones, Mm -hmm. and it was really about um, detailing, you know, why you should wear amethyst to prevent drunkenness and why opals were said to be cursed when they're really not. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I just think that that's always kind of been like the old wives' tales that surround and swirl around jewelry. Mm. Um, I think moonstone was supposed to be a stone that you should wear as an engagement ring because it was supposed to like foretell in in the sort of mystical depths of the stone itself. It was supposed to foretell what the relationship would be like, and mm. only diamonds only became engagement rings due to like commercialism and right. you know advertising and, and G. that G. kind Beers. of that. yeah <laughs> yeah literally yeah. Um, so yeah, there's just kind of a deep seated public perception of why certain stones are cursed or or Mm. bad luck or good luck or or
0: whatever that's so interesting i i personally also think there's an element because often the stones that are the ones that are cursed are kind of so outrageously expensive Mm. there's an element of like um getting more than you bargained for Mm. or like to to want something so beautiful and to have it to capture it is kind of a sin there's always a price to pay yes exactly like beyond
1: the the money <laughs> beyond
0: the actual money you mm-hmm. kind of t- to have captured something so beautiful is kind of you will suffer the consequences yeah. kind of um I think there's an element to that and that's why you have names like the heart of fire right. like it's very dramatic right right you know let's talk about Catherine Gray because I don't know why she's in this book um for me it's the biggest question mark of the entire plot how do you see her presence and I mean you've already said you don't really think she's necessary to the narrative
1: yeah she just kind of was a, a you know someone walking around with a doll so that other people could talk to her. Like, she didn't... <laughs> yeah. She she kind of realized things at the end, I suppose, mm-hmm. in at in a pivotal moment, but I don't know. She wasn't... Um, in the same way that Murder on the Orient Express had, like, such a great cast of characters where you're, like, you weren't ever really sure who it could have been, and everyone mm-hmm. kind of had some angle. Like, she didn't. She was really benign and yeah. just kind of floated through. Yeah.
0: yeah. I wondered if... Um, Christy was trying her out a little bit as a potentially recurring character, Mm. because um, so we have Hastings, which who is a recurring character who typically narrates Poirot's books, and he's kind of the foil to Poirot. He he's always guessing wrong. He's like the reader, right? And Poirot is always like, "Oh my sweet little idiot," you know, at the end, and um, and so I I wondered if she was meant to be kind of a potential other type of Hastings character because she. Her whole thing is, like, she kept everything so close to her chest that even Poirot, the great Poirot, didn't yeah. know what she was thinking right? and couldn't quite figure her out. Um, and I think...
1: It was also sort of a feminine touch for her to, like, yes. go to the, the villas after after the train ride and, like, see the other sort of players who were female and kind of have maybe more intimate conversations than... Yeah. I mean, it's not like Poirot is bad at, like charming no, ladies that, he he's, does that he's yeah. very good at that yeah. and, and he not in like a overwhelming way but no. it just in a like i'm here to talk and i want you know to get as much information as possible mm-hmm. um he calls that persona papa poirot <laughs> okay yeah. <laughs> yeah he's very good at it yeah, i is. mean he can be demanding but mm-hmm. it, it usually goes well yeah um but maybe Catherine was sort of a i don't know just a. Different way to sort of sneak into those mm. moments yeah. uh, of like woman to woman conversation. I-,
0: I wish we'd gotten more of Lennox and Lady Tamplin. Yeah, because they, were, they funny. were really funny. Yeah, I loved it. And chubby. Mm-hmm, her mm-hmm. like 20 year old husband or whatever mm-hmm. he was walking around, kind of just like a little doofus yeah. um there
1: were a lot of great stories yeah. that were told about like oh a, a woman would never put her jewels in the safe as her husband told her right she rolled them up in her corsets and stockings and yes. they were thus saved by the you know the burglar broke into the safe right the jewels were not stolen she'd put all of her buttons in there like all these right. kind of knowing things about like what a woman would actually do with her jewelry i yeah. loved that yeah um one of the quotes i saved was uh didn't I tell you there's no end to the lies women will tell about their jewelry? Mm. Mm. No comment, but I love it <laughs> what,
0: what does that mean to you that Like whether it's real or not? maybe that yeah okay. maybe
1: that ties back into paste mm-hmm. like you, you know if you're dressed a certain way, if you're at a certain event, if you're with certain people and you have all fake jewelry, who's ever going to know? It's just sort of a circumstantial detail that if everything else is right, who's to say your your jewelry is real or not? Um, it's like how you
0: carry it, if fake it till you make it moment. Yeah. Um, I, I know someone and I won't name their name <laughs> who bought all her jewelry by telling her husband that it was half the price it really was. Wow. Yeah, ballsy. I love it. Very that. ballsy, mm-hmm. and she has a
1: great jewelry collection. Yeah, and jewelry jewelry <laughs> is so personal that yeah. you can kind of make up whatever story you want about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wore my rubies for today. Beautiful. And I could tell you anything about why I have this ring, but mm. only I really know, or only the owner really knows why they have it, mm. or what it means. Yeah, uh, who gave it to them? Like, there's so many things. Yeah, so many layers.
0: That's right. Yeah, and I, I guess I wish in the book that we'd actually heard perhaps a little bit more from ruth kettering about how she felt about the rubies because she was gone so soon she was gone so soon she's kind of treated as not a very nice person which Mm -hmm. i guess christy often does with her victims we kind of don't feel that bad that they're dead because they weren't great right Um, she's having an affair she's having an affair even though her husband was having like 100 affairs Mm -hmm. um you know i i I would have been interested in her take on the jewelry because she seemed to just go like, thanks so much, dad. And like put them in her right. pocket.
1: Right. Casually. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, and I guess when you're that wealthy, maybe that's just how you treat them. But, um, we didn't get a sense of like her attachment to them whatsoever mm-hmm. and why, she, I mean, we know she took them on the train because the Comte de la Roche has said, I'm writing a, like a history of those rubies or whatever. Yes. Some nonsense thing. Um, but yeah, that was, I felt kind of missing from the story. um, Do you think that the jewelry in this, the jewelry heist in this book, is what makes the plot, or would this have been just as interesting if there had been just a murder on a train?
1: If it didn't have the jewelry, it would be a a dry run for Murder on the Mm. Orient Express.
0: (laughs) Yeah, basically. I mean,
1: but that's not to say that the jewelry really adds that much to like the core mystery. Really, I, I suppose it's kind of a divergence of like wait, why was she actually murdered? And who actually has the stones? And, oh, wait, I think that this is what happened, but it's not really what happened. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's just it's like a half-red herring or something, like a distraction.
0: A ruby herring. Yeah,
1: a ruby herring. There we go. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah I, I, I think the jewels add a nice touch. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, when you're, like, on the train to the French Riviera and there's mm-hmm. rubies, like, there's a lot of glamorous elements of this, but I never... Um, because I think, as you said earlier, because the plot is so diffuse and it takes such a long time, mm-hmm. there isn't a great sense of urgency. And even Poirot, like, doesn't seem that bothered about solving the mystery. He's like, it'll happen when it happens. Right. Right. <laughs> Which, to say that to a grieving father, he's like, you know, it was uh, quite bold. Um, and that, that doesn't really happen a lot throughout the books. He he does take his time, but generally with a sense of urgency of, like, I need to solve the crime. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, so I'm, I guess I'm just interested overall in your thoughts on the book. Like, what was your big takeaway? Are you going to be reading more Christie's after this?
1: I want to read a biography of her. I mm-hmm. want to know more about
0: her. I, yeah. I
1: love that you said that this was written around the same time as her, like, famous uh, disappearance, where she, yes. like, ran away to the seaside or wherever. She like went some to village.
0: Harrogate. Yeah, she went to a spa in Harrogate, which... Oh. I, Honestly, like, same. Yeah, I wish we could all that go. That sounds, to a, great. <laughs> sounds really How many nice.
1: times do I just want to like walk into a meadow and never turn around? Like, exactly. Um, and wasn't it like Sir Arthur Corn Doyle who like tracked her down or something? They had like some sort of friendship or? Yeah. Tell me so if he, I'm wrong.
0: No, so he didn't track her down, but he did like he brought in a medium or a psychic, I oh believe, to try to solve where she had gone, and it didn't really go anywhere. Mm. Um, but yeah, he had great hopes of like solving it.
1: Wow. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yes, I will read more of her work, but I want to know more about her. Yeah. Um, I feel like there was just a good new biography that came out or something. There
0: is one by Lucy Worsley called okay. Agatha Christie, An Elusive Woman. Wow. Yeah. Um, and and there's another one called Agatha Christie, A Mysterious Life, which mm-hmm. is by Laura Thompson, who is also on the podcast. And that's mm-hmm. a great biography as well. Okay. Um, and she also wrote an autobiography, oh, wow. uh, which is worth reading. But um, she does not mention The Disappearance. Mm-hmm. So... She's you like, won't, I don't want
1: to talk about that. You <laughs> won't
0: learn more about it. No. And, you know, what's interesting is that was, you know, she kind of had like a mental breakdown. Like she was going through a lot. She left. She did tell someone where she was going, but yeah. he never communicated it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she was also just a famously private person. She she did not like to give public speeches or, mm-hmm. or talk to the press. So um, she just never talked about it again. And it was oh. probably a pretty traumatic moment in yeah, her life. why should she have yeah, to? Yeah, she shouldn't have to. She's just churning out three books a year, like leave a lady alone. Seriously. Um, but anyway, so if our listeners are interested in more jewelry heist, fiction or nonfiction, where should they get started?
1: Um, the Great Muppet Caper is of, on my I'm, list.
0: That is th- – <laughs> we can end the podcast here. That's the best answer you could have given. The Baseball Diamond? Come on.
1: Um I love the opening scene of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom of with the diamond and the ice and the nightclub. Yes. I think it's like in China, Shanghai or something. Mm-hmm. It's so chic. Yeah. Um, it has nothing to do with the plot. It's just a little like opening yeah. moment. But a little pulled open. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. I mean, we mentioned Ocean It's 8. One of my favorite jewelry movies that isn't really 8 heist and isn't about jewelry at all is vertigo Mm. Um, but the plot hinges on that necklace it is in the painting it's a gift it triggers his memory it it, you know makes him realize that it's it's the same woman like it's such a pivotal moment and i just love everything about vertigo
0: oh it's such a great film yeah
1: yeah um what else did i have on my list um i mentioned the moonstone oh to catch a thief of course is really great Mm -hmm. um it's thematically about jewelry but there's not, like, a ton of great jewelry in the movie. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, those are some of my
0: favorites. Fantastic. Um, so thank you so much for being here tonight. Where Would you like to be found by the people? And if so, where can they find you? Um, just on Instagram,
1: Instagram? honestly, yeah, the, at Levi Higgs yeah. underscore in the, in the middle.
0: Um. And are there any other Instagram accounts you would recommend for jewelry lovers? Oh, my God, so many. That is a terrible question. I'm sorry. Um. <laughs> Give us two.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Hold on, hold on. Let me okay. let me pull up some. Let me think for one moment. Uh, and then I'll like start that sentence anew anyway, okay. so I don't no sound problem. like a cretin <laughs> Um <clears throat> I just wanna say some good ones.
0: Yeah, say some good ones.
1: Okay, I'm gonna say um, one of my favorites is the art of the jewel on Instagram. Okay. Um Claudine is an amazing jewelry historian and has like really great archival. Photos and renderings and storytelling. Yeah. She's like a true scholar, so I really respect her. Um, and I would also recommend uh, Wartsky on Instagram if you just type wartsky I think it's Wartski eighteen sixty five. Okay, um, they're a, a immaculate dealer from London. They deal in the highest quality anything and okay. I just am fascinated by everything that they have so
0: amazing those would be my shout outs I will be following immediately and I will say a book that really helped me understand jewelry and stones in general is stoned by Aja mm. Radin,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um which I really like she's a talks a lot about the science of gemstones as well which yeah. I really appreciated and the mining process and the history of of how stones became popular from different parts of the world. So that's one I would recommend. Great.
1: Uh, One jewelry book I'll plug Mm. is um, Jewels, A Secret History by Victoria Victoria Findlay. Okay. Um, And each chapter is about a different gemstone and like where it's sourced from and why it does what it does. Uh Um, Like jet and uh, a lapis from Afghanistan. It sort of travels the world to tell you why and how and what's the cultural history of these
0: stones. That Um, sounds amazing. Really good. Okay. fantastic. Thank you so much for being here again, and uh, I really appreciate you reading the book and coming and talking to me. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Levi. Good night. Good morning. Thank you to our producer, Kate Krishal, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. To stay up to date and get some extra fun info, you can follow us on Instagram at T&Murder. Reading and reviewing us really helps, so please do that if you feel so inclined. We're on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please remember to follow us there and recommend us to anyone you think might need a little extra tea and/or murder in their lives. In two weeks, we'll be talking about Crooked House. Rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookstore, or if you need to buy online, we recommend Bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next episode's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We'll be back in two weeks.